Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Raiders Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right. It is my turn. I picked a story called The Black Phone by Joe Hill. I came across it because I'm continuing my trend of looking up short stories that have been made into films. <laughs> yes, it's working out. It's working out really well, I think. Maybe it's like working out hopefully too for, you know, people discovering the podcast or like caring about the short story. That's really why I'm doing it, you know. At first it was like hard to come up with stories to find, but now that I'm doing this it's like, yeah, let's revisit the original. It's always better. I came across this one. It just came out in theaters, I guess. So I thought it was like forthcoming. I think it was was at the time that I came across it, but that was a couple weeks ago. So yeah, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be out in theaters. Out of the theaters, people have yeah, forgotten no. about it. <laughs> by the time it's out, you'll find it on Netflix or something. But yeah, Finny okay. glanced up, had time to see Al holding a steel can, yellow and black, with pictures of wasps on it. He was shaking it furiously. Finny began to smile, had the wild idea that Al was about to spray him with silly string. The part-time clown hit him in the face with a blast of white foam. Finney started to turn his head away, but was too slow to avoid getting it in his eyes. He screamed and took some in the mouth, tasted something harsh and chemical. His eyes were coals, cooking in their sockets. His throat burned. In his entire life, he had never felt any pain like it, a searing icy heat. His stomach heaved and the grape soda came back up in a hot, sweet rush. Al had him by the back of the neck and was pulling him forward into the van. Finney's eyes were open, but all he could see were the pulsations of orange and oily brown that flared, dripped, ran into one another and faded. The fat man had a fistful of his hair and another hand between his legs, scooping him up by the crotch. The inside of Al's arm brushed his cheek. Finney turned his head and bit down on a mouthful of wobbling fat, squeezed until he tasted blood. The fat man wailed and let go, and for a moment, Finney had his feet on the ground again. He stepped back and put his heel on an orange. His ankle folded. He tottered, almost fell, and then the fat man had him by the neck again. He shoved him forward. Finney hit one of the van's rear doors head first with a low bonging sound, and all the strength went out of his legs. Albert had an arm under his chest, tipped him forward into a coal chute, then he let go, and Finney dropped with a horrifying velocity into darkness. Do you know who this writer is? Um, yes. Okay, well, I forgot. <laughs> it's Stephen King's son. Yeah. One of them. One of the the elder, yes. I think. Doesn't just one of them, right? I thought they both did. Did they? The fact that we don't know is bothering one, if not both of them. <laughs> yeah. But yes, this is one of the sons. And I don't, I feel like one of them is more prolific than the other one, or I don't know. But obviously, like when you're reading this, it is so Stephen King. In a lot of ways, yeah. The clown, the boys getting kidnapped by the clown. <laughs> The whole Stephen King, I talk about it every time I talk about it because I don't have like anything else to reference, but like all of his cast of characters and like all the time periods and all like the feelings of like a ragtag bunch of boys that are always the heroes, you know, because they're always wise to what is actually happening and the victim of whatever it is. And the adults are not like the adults are nowhere to be found. So even in this story, when uh, Finney, who's kidnapped by this clown he, he knows everything about this clown in terms of like what he's done to other kids like he knows that other kids have disappeared and that it's like this guy or whoever it was maybe it wasn't the clown every time whatever but like he knows that he's probably gonna die and then he starts getting these like visions in the basement from the other kids so he knows that like the phone is always a thing the phone always rings and like he's gonna be in there for a couple days blah 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 but even as he like envisions being saved he's picturing like his sister 
you know, he's not picturing like a parent figure, the cops, anyone like that is so Stephen King. It's probably the only takeaway I have, which is like when kids turn on authority and band together, it makes for like a wonderful coming of youth. You know, when the kids are the heroes, that has a certain feel to it. So that was all like, so Stephen King, so Stephen King. But I like this because it was short and I think it's definitely a memorable story. They're turning it into a movie, which this story takes place in one room. You know, like there's a scene at the beginning where he's captured, but then the rest of it is like, he's in the basement and anything else is flashback or like a hallucination, you know? So there's like room to move, but it is like a kind of short contained piece. So I wonder what the film will look like. And I feel like they're probably only making it a film because it's a King writer, you know, it's Joe Hill. What was fun about this, though, and I I don't necessarily have tons to say about it. I just feel like, um, you know, like a a lot of Stephen King's horror is like as close as you can get to like a jump scare on the page. So we've talked about other horror stories in short fiction format and how they're less jump scare than they are, you know, like tension and stress and like just weird stuff. Um, But you can't like make me jump when I'm reading it, right? Like you, you get a different thrill from horror on the page versus horror in a theater. So it is always like interesting to look at whatever you can come across that's like this is gonna be a jump scare on film you know what i mean yeah like there will be moments there's this one spot where uh he's like picked up the phone in the basement he's dialed he dialed for the operator and the receiver went click 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 in his ear but there was no ring on the other end no connection then all of a sudden quotes quote marks in the next line it doesn't work al said it hasn't worked since i was a kid that's like the literary like the literary textual equivalent of a jump scare because al has not been introduced to the scene in any other way until he starts talking right so you're like oh who's talking oh it's al okay yeah yeah and even then like i mean it's more disorienting than it is shocking you know because you're reading it you see the quote marks and you're like oh wait someone's talking yeah he was alone in the room so who who's saying that then the, the name happens after right and like our eyes like skip ahead and skip back and like skip all over the page while they're reading i know there's so many things that are happening where you're like your brain is cheating you out of that's right the traditional <laughs> horror experience yeah <laughs> so my only like thought to comment on why this works is because even though it's maybe like defined as a horror what's done really well here is like all the action there's a couple of those scenes where like you know finney's gonna make a break for it he's gonna try something he's gonna have that encounter at the end with the brother and then with al the final struggle here like spoiler he survives but stuff like that is where i think you can tell that steven and joe are good writers it's almost like i'm sure i've talked about this with Stephen king's writing it's like the less you're noticing the language itself the more you should probably admit that it is really really good writing so there's writing where like you're reading it and you're underlining every word and sentence because it's like poetry you're like, that was gorgeous. Like, I am paying attention to the syntax and like, I love it. Like, I love this. It's beautiful, beautiful. I have books like that where you're like, you're circling sentiments or lines of dialogue and just like powerful. And then there's stuff like this by writers like this that you're just zinging through. And that is equally skilled writing. It's just for a totally different purpose. You talked about uh, the action and like, yeah. you know, part of the zipping through, I think is like that jump scare section I pointed out before, but on page four, 
14 at the bottom. Um, so he's looking up and he sees this window, right? Long glass. There were two little windows, long glass slots set high in the wall, well out of easy reach, emitting some faint weed green light. Rusty grills have been bolted across them. Finney studied one of the windows for a long time, then ran at the wall, didn't give himself time to think how drained and sick he was, planted a foot against the plaster and leaped. For one moment, he grabbed the grill, but the steel links were too close together to squeeze a finger in and he dropped back to his heels then fell on his rear shivering violently there's no internal deliberation yeah it just says he's studying one of the windows for a long time what a good point yeah okay you you don't get anything internal like in his mind you just see him from the outside and it's like watching a movie like suddenly he's running at the wall you're like what's he doing i don't know and then you see until you see it all play out you don't know what he's doing yeah that's one of those like i think that could be you can use that as a trick that's a bit of like how to write certain kinds of scenes to get that effect right yeah just to not go into their head for that you get in his head in other places so it's not like this point of view doesn't go in his head it's just for that moment you don't need you to you don't need it yeah that's a great point like maybe if you've been criticized for having like clunky writing or writing that it's difficult to picture maybe that's what you're doing too much of like taking them out of the scene by like putting them back in someone's head that could that could absolutely do it yeah because then you're looking at two different things yeah that makes so much sense yeah i mean like back to my point like the reason it's well done you can recognize it as being well done is because you can picture it all you know and so you're able to picture it all because you're not being interrupted by like you said jumping in and out of the character's head like this is pure action this is pure stage notes you know like this is how it would maybe be written in like a screenplay like he dips back he grabs him here you know like if you wanted to give these actors <laughs> notes on a stage play it'd be like they fight <laughs> but you know what i mean like you get the choreographer to come in and like make something up <laughs> Yeah, whatever. So the whoever is like actually doing like the blocking for this would whatever you call it. Yeah. So there's sections like that which are good, and then like I think the rest of the story is like pretty straightforward. It's almost like a it's it's a good formula, you know. Like mm-hmm. he runs into a clown, which is interesting enough, and then he gets kidnapped right away. First section, we don't have this bizarre buildup. Uh, just show us the action, show us like the inciting incident, which is him getting kidnapped, and then uh, the second section, and it's numbered too which we've talked about probably at least like i've talked about it in our workshop i feel like when you break a story into sections it's like so much easier for you to picture it you know it comes across as this like skilled thing where you've broken it up and paused somewhere but it's also really great to help you storyboard it's like end scene and it gives you like permission to start somewhere else you don't have to have this transition so he goes down a dark chute and then the second one is uh the second section just starts and it says a door banged open. So you don't necessarily like, you know, time has passed because we know that the clown has him in his car and it's taking him somewhere. But we don't have to see all that. He doesn't have to show us all that. We don't have to bother. You know, you could maybe you could have shown us that, but he don't want to maybe. And this way he just appears in the basement next. And then the next section, this is my only edit on this story, which is so stupid. and so minor because who cares? <laughs> but the very, the very first sentence of section three, it says he didn't know what Al was going to say when he came back, but he he didn't need to explain anything. Finney already knew all about it. I would have put that at the end of section two. Because in the, the beginning of section three could just start the first child to disappear. And that that accomplishes what I'm talking about, which is like giving you permission to just jump into something. So section three just like jumps into backstory. So he could have started this story and said like the first child to disappear. He could have started with this section. But then we know that Finney's going to get captured. Who cares? And we also don't need to know that Finney knows that kids have been captured as he's being captured because that that it's it's told so quickly. He's fighting for his life in the moment. It makes sense to introduce the backstory when he has time 
to actually sit and think and reflect on it. So that's another like takeaway, right? Like a lot of times when we have stories by writers who are like so stressed about, well, I got to tell you about what happened that led up to this. They don't know when to insert it, right? We always say like, try to find a way that like it naturally arises, you know, like in conversation with another character where they see something and it reminds them of something else. This is a perfect example of like when to insert backstory, which is like when he's literally sitting in a cell waiting and he's reflecting on this exact scenario. So this is when you give it. I think that uh, paragraph, you're right. The break could come after that paragraph. Yeah. I think the reason it doesn't, or a reason maybe kind of defend why it's there. Yeah, sure. Would be that I like the ending of the previous section better where it did leave off. So then why not delete the line altogether? Maybe that could be a solution too. But I think you're right. I mean, you can, because you're breaking in sections, you, you don't need to like lead us into it. But you were talking about like when to insert background. And this story follows the exact same kind of structure that we talked about in a couple of other stories over time. And I think we kind of talked about it in that Lady Tiger's story. Yeah. And then we talked about it in that Dale Bailey Snow story. Yeah. But it's like you start off with some sort of action, some sort of thing, like the current moment and then you dive into backstory and then you come back to the current moment since we pointed that out in whichever episode so many stories i've read have followed that exact formula that exact structure even flash fiction can sometimes fall into that structure it's kind of amazing that once you notice that it's like everywhere but it's like current action that the current action being also where the drama is like you start with the drama go to backstory to kind of bring us up to speed and then come back to the drama right and this story does that it's like start with the drama he's being kidnapped backstory where did this kidnapper go what's been going on why does he you know what does he know come back to the drama of he's been kidnapped so you can take that out of horror as a genre out of any other you put it into any kind of situation yeah just work have a structure that works yeah once you kind of know that it feels like cheating (laughs) you know because it really does remove a lot of the guesswork it removes a lot of what you've otherwise told yourself is like the creative process of deciding when to do this like the reason like formulas like that are so successful and so common is because like they just work like why would you continue to reinvent this in a confusing way like this is the way that at least in the 21st century like we expect this information to be given to us one one problem is if, if I can offer any kind of advice <laughs> Go realizing ahead, that don't think about it when you're reading too much because it'll get monotonous. Sure. But the other thing is reading this, when I reread it, I was like, how are they going to put this as a movie? Because this is really short. Like, I don't it know is. how you make this into a movie. Like, I'm just trying to imagine, do you start with the backstory? Do you start like with earlier kidnappings and kind of like build this? Because one of the cool things he does is on page two, he's watching this guy struggle at the back of the van. And this is the guy that's going to wind up killing him or uh, kidnapping him. And he says, um, what happened next was such a perfect bit of slapstick it might have been practiced and only later did it occur to finney that probably it had been that's a little bit of foreshadowing you think about it you you have this inference of menace right you're like right oh okay if this is something that later finney thought was probably practiced that means that it led to something that's worth talking about so when you translate that into a movie you can introduce menace in a bunch of different ways like with visual medium you know like just color scheme kind of just like music all kinds of things can help introduce that menace like in the story you need just the words and the way that things are presented right so anyway it just makes me think about how this could be restructured to be a movie i don't think it would work if its current structure if like after the kidnapping you just jump backwards in time it doesn't feel like that would work in a movie maybe they could 
could, but I feel like you have to do something else. Not sure. Yeah. I mean, I was surprised when I reread the article that I sent you talking about how this is going to be made into a film. And for some reason, I just assumed this was going to be like a short, like indie film, like a Netflix thing, you know, like shorter, like a different format because it is such a short, compact story. And I felt the same way about like, how big do you want this to be versus how true to like this structure, which is like, we're talking about a three day time period, you know, it's not like Stephen King's it where he's like, oh, this happened uh, like 30 years ago. So we should probably go in chronological order. But then I saw that it was like actually going to be released in theaters, which means it's probably going to be at least 90 minutes. But uh, what else do you like about this? I just like that, like, this is a good example of a character that's disoriented too, but we know as much as the character knows. We still, as the reader, like, have a firm understanding of, like, what's physically happening to his body. So when it says things like they shoved him down a coal shaft, like, he's not in a coal shaft. He's, like, in the van. He's, like, traveling to the other place. And then he's, like, in a basement, you know? But, like, we get what it feels like to him when he's, like, sprayed in the face with a wasp spray. He doesn't necessarily even know in the moment it's wasp spray. He's just, like, reeling in pain but like we feel the pain we understand that so he's disoriented but like we can still understand that he was sprayed with something and that did this and it's hard to articulate why it's done well but it's done well because a lot of times when a character is disoriented in a story the reader gets disoriented and it's because the writer is trying to convey that feeling to you i I don't want to feel disoriented (laughs) you know like i i want to know what's happening but i don't want to like read this stuff and be like wait what like did he just get like thrown into a what's happening you know like there's enough here that i can like picture the scene still obviously there's stories where you are disoriented completely and it still somehow works but here i think that's not the point you're not supposed to be like wondering what's happening you're supposed to be flipping the pages hoping that he kills this clown my only takeaway is that something that I've said a million times, which is I just really like the way this is broken up with those numbers. And I think it does like just help you. It helps you as the reader to say like, I'm going to do this in this section now. And I've done that for longer short stories. So like there would be on my end some storyboarding for sure to help me like, you know, transition. Cause it's so hard to think of a story that that's long, that is that long where, you know, you know, there's like some time passing, there's like some scenes and some moments, maybe some flashbacks. So when you think, about when you have to do that to like just kind of give yourself permission to say like this section is going to be this this section like I have to do that when I'm doing longer stories and then when you actually like do the numbers then you don't even have to like transition between the sections like there's obviously transitions happening here but they're not these written transitions right like you're signaling to the reader that we're done with this scene you're giving an indication that you're still in the present moment but you know five minutes has passed you know whatever there's still it's still cohesive it's not like you're jumping around going nuts but I just like that structure in terms of writing your story that way whether or not you like keep the numbers or whatever but it helps me to conceive of it do you have a takeaway um yeah well my takeaway <laughs> was uh, basically um so I wouldn't think of this as being any he's not he's not like some amazing stylist or anything like yes. that the writing is is very good though my takeaway from this is just to like look at the different he may he does like a, on every page he does like some other move that you don't even notice right yeah but he's just like he's a good writer so he has this like toolbox of moves. repertoire yeah. <laughs> yeah so i already mentioned like the one where it's like the textual equivalent of a jump scare right yes the little foreshadowing of menace thing that i mentioned before is another one uh-huh. there's uh when he uh and this is something like everyone does this but it, it, it's something to notice is like uh after he gets sprayed in the eyes he screamed and took some in the mouth tasted something harsh and chemical his eyes were coals cooking in their socket 
sockets. You know, that that's like a, an explicit metaphor. Yeah. Um, he didn't say his eyes felt like coals. Right. As if they were cooking in his sockets or something like squarely like that. It just goes straight to the image. His eyes were coals. Huh. You could go through this and find all those little things. I mean, just talk about the structure, how it's like inciting incident, background, back to the drama. Right. And um, this other part, like he's in the room and he's trying to like get the layout as it is. And um, he talked about uh, to his right, midway down the room was a black box or cabinet bolted to the wall. At first, he couldn't recognize it for what it was, not because of his, his unclear vision, but because it was so out of place, a thing that didn't belong in a prison cell. It's not naming what it is, but the right. first words, the next paragraph is a phone, yeah. a large, old-fashioned black phone, a receiver hanging from a silver cradle on the side. That's something to, you know, like you were talking about whether or not he was disoriented versus us being disoriented. This is yeah. a way where we're not confused by what's going on, but we're still tracking his like the path of his thoughts yeah. as they take in what's around him. Because I mean, like that's the only way that we can do it in fiction, right? Yeah. Like what they'll do in this in the film is going to be totally different. They're going to yes. like show you the phone. Yeah. And you're going to be like, is that a phone? Yeah. But here it's like, you have to walk us through that. Yeah. It's a similar thing, but it's, it's done in a different way is when he's trying to measure what other people are doing, like the search for him now that he's been kidnapped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, um, when he tried to picture the search, he didn't visualize his weeping mother answering a detective's yeah. questions in her kitchen. And he didn't see his father out in front of Poole's hardware, turning away from the sight of a policeman carrying an empty bottle of grape soda in an evidence bag. This is this is reminiscent of uh, Bullet in the Brain. Where yeah, he, he didn't, didn't think about this. He didn't think about yeah. that. And then next paragraph is instead he imagines Susanna standing on the pedals of her 10 speed and gliding down the center of one rider. So he's thinking of his sister. And, you know, when you're writing, you can kind of set up, like, you can describe something by saying what it's not, right? Yeah. But you can't do on film. It's not like you can show a picture of an elephant and be like, this is not a rhinoceros. <laughs> right. I don't know how you do that. But by doing that, you're, you're establishing a mood. You're kind of suggesting things that aren't, that he's not thinking about, but you know, in some way that they actually happened, right? Right. Like um, his father turning away from the sight of the policeman with the grape soda bottle. Right. Yeah. So that's my takeaway is basically you okay. can go through this prose and even though it's not some amazing stylist you want to copy all the metaphors and way of seeing the world there's so many things to learn just by breaking down the prose like that little tricks yeah. little tools which uh he learned from his father so oh yeah i'm sure <laughs> and he probably reads as much of it as his dad does too so. oh yeah I mean, like, if my dad was Stephen King, I would, like, purposely not read his shit. But even if you don't read his stuff, I mean, Stephen King reads all the time. Everything oh, yeah. he can get his yeah. hands on. So you know that there are piles and piles of books around the house as he's growing up. He's going to be able oh, to Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Very literary family. Oh, the only other thing I'll mention is that apparently this was based on a basement that they had growing up. Oh, that's right. It was in that article. Yeah, yeah. it was in that article. So, yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash whyisthisgoodpodcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.